0: Let's look here in Mark chapter 9 tonight, and we'll read the first 13 verses. We'll pray first. Father, I just ask uh, once again that the Lord Jesus Christ be magnified through your word, and that all of our hearts, Father, will be open, and that you'll give us understanding that we can glorify you through what we hear and what is said tonight in Jesus' name. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, and it says, And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, That there be some of you that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John, and leadeth them up into an high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elias with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. And suddenly, when they had looked around about, they saw no man any more, save Jesus only with themselves. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. And they asked him, saying, Why say the scribes that Elias must first come? And he answered and told them, Elias verily cometh first and restores all things, and how it is written of the son of man that he must suffer many things and be set at naught but i say unto you that elias is indeed come and they have done unto him whatsoever they listed as it is written of him last week we said this was a pivotal point in the gospel of mark as we went and finished chapter 8 because it's the halfway point as far as the chapters are concerned but more importantly There's a change in the major emphasis in Mark's gospel from here on out. So like we said, the first half, kind of reviewing for a minute here, the first half of Mark highlights the authority of Jesus as a teacher, his power to deal with the effects of the devil, casting out demons, healing all manner of sickness, raising the dead. He has power, we see, over nature. He stills a raging storm. He walks on the sea. He's able to multiply food. And it ends, chapter 8 ends with the great confession of Peter that thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. But we said that just like the blind man, we said that story wasn't put in there accidentally. Just like the blind man that had to be prayed for twice, Peter's vision had to be fully restored he had to have more than just his vision given once so to speak a revelation one time so he saw that indeed jesus was the christ the messiah the anointed king and we said that was a great revelation that was no small thing because jesus said blessed art thou simon because that revelation isn't given to everybody he said my father in heaven had to show you that that's nothing to you sat there and thought up on your own that was a major big deal but Jesus goes on to tell him, he says, Peter, there is more that you need to see. There's a further revelation. And that's what he gives him down. If you look back in chapter 8, verse 31, and it said after Peter had made that confession, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must, and that word must means it's necessary, he must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Well, Peter doesn't want to hear that. Because it doesn't fit his ambitions. So he's hooked his wagon, we said. He's hooked his wagon up to Jesus, and he's going where he's going. And he's not liking where Jesus is saying that he's going right now. And so he tells him, he rebukes him. When Jesus says he must suffer many things, Peter rebukes him. He's like, no way. And Matthew's account tells us that he said, be it far from thee, Lord. And that literally, it's funny, the literal Greek is two words, and it means merciful to you. So they translate it, be it far from thee, Lord. It literally means merciful to you because it's an idiom. It's a figure of speech, merciful to you, that means may God be merciful to you and sparing you from having to undergo this. So they just shrink that down to far be it from thee, Lord, but it's an idiom. May God be merciful to you that you don't have to undergo this. And then he adds, this shall never happen to you. It's Like, how can this happen to you? You've come to deliver us from the Romans and everybody, all of us, your disciples that are hanging around you, we're all going to be given great positions of authority and power, right? And Jesus says, no. He said, Peter, you have bought into the wrong gospel because you think that I've come to bring you ease and comfort and popularity. And he says, You're setting your mind, not on God's interest, not on what God's interested in, but what man is interested in. And he's saying this crossless Christianity, which we have a lot of that around today, but he's telling Peter this crossless Christianity comes from another source, Satan. That's the source of a crossless Christianity. And so Jesus' word to all of us, to the disciples back then, but to us today is still the same, that whosoever... Will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He's saying that is the only way you'll live, ultimately. That's the only way you're going to save your life. So it has to be a deliberate choice that we make. We have to decide whether we're going to court the favor of men, the people we go to school with, the people we work with, the people in the community, the, our relatives, just the world in general. We have to make a decision, don't we? Because look what it says in Mark eight thirty-eight. He says, "...whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, he says of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." And so here's what he's telling us there. The fear of man can and is a great snare to us, isn't it? And we've got to make a choice whether we're going to fear man or whether we're going to fear God. Because we read in John 12 this, that among the chief rulers also many believed on him. There were many of the chief rulers. They knew who he was and they believed on him. But it says because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Why was that? It says, for they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Now, that's something we all have to consider. We're all dealt with that in a lot of different ways. We've all compromised probably somewhere along the line where we didn't stick up for the Lord like we should have. We didn't confess Him and what was right like we should have. But God will forgive us. But we can't be like they were. So they were more worried about their position, their income, and their life in this world than they were about their eternal destiny. That's what Jesus is saying. And so what does He say about that? Look up two more verses from verse 38. Verse 36, He says, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? So Jesus is telling us, we talked about this last week, what is the most valuable thing we possess? And you're like, it's my house. It's my kids. No, it's not. It's your soul. Nothing else. No amount of money, riches, lands, houses, no, earth, no earthly security is worth striving for. If you're going to lose your soul over it, that's what he's saying. So we may not value our souls, but the Lord Jesus Christ knew the value of souls. And that's why he did leave the ease and the comfort and the glory of heaven to come down here and allow himself to be abused in so many different ways. He was disrespected, abused, spit upon, beaten. His beard pulled out, suffered on that cross because that is the value of your and soul. Amen. He gladly did that. He came down here to rescue our souls. So the rich man in Luke 12, we said he spoke to his soul. He was talking to his soul. And he says, soul, you have much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And we said, He's having the wrong conversation there. Wrong conversation with the soul. Jesus says, this is how we should speak to our soul. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his soul? It's not worth it. I'm not going to compromise what I know to be right just to gain my own soul, right? nothing's worth it. So as we come to chapter 9, I want to look here at verse 9. Jesus makes a statement here in the first verse of chapter 9 that has many opinions about what it means. And I don't want to get into all of them, but it says there, He said unto them, Truly or verily I say unto you, that there be some of them which stand here which shall not taste of death until they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. You know, there's a lot of people, they think a lot of the liberals will say, Well, he made a false prophecy because they think they're talking about his second coming. And they're like, well, all of them died before his second coming came. And I don't think that's what he's talking about there. I think it's simply a matter of, and this is the best way to interpret any verses, anything you want to know in Scripture is to do what? What's the first thing you look at? The context, right? Well, when you look at the context of that, what does he say? He says that not all of the disciples are going to see him come in power or see the kingdom come with power. He just says some, some will. And so what do we have when he goes up onto the mountain with what we just read? Does he take all of the disciples and the crowd with him? Does he even take all of the 12 with him? He just takes some of them with him. He takes Peter, James and John. And I think... The kingdom coming in its power, what they're seeing, I think that is what's happening here on the Mount of Transfiguration. Because if you'll remember back when we talked about Mark chapter one, verse 15, Jesus said this. When he came preaching, he says, the time is fulfilled. It's been fulfilled. And he says, and the kingdom of God is at hand. And what does we say? Who is the kingdom of God is at hand? What is he talking about? It's him. Because he is the kingdom of God, so to speak. It's come in his person. He is the source, is what I'm trying to say. So Peter and James and John, they are going to see the kingdom in a sense in its glory and power. So listen, what is the glory and light that will fill the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth? You know what the glory and light will be? It will be the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father It'll be God himself. Because listen, Revelation 21 says this, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it. And the Lamb is the light thereof, and the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And that is the glory of the kingdom. It will fill the entire new heavens and new earth the glory of god and that's what they're seeing in seed form here with the lord jesus christ on the mount of transfiguration that is what they witnessed so we look here down in verses two and three and it says and after six days after six days that these things happen peter's confession and peter tells them they need to pick up their cross and had saying in verse one After six days, it says, Jesus taketh with him Peter, James, and John, and leads them up into a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth could white them. And so here we have just three of them taken. He doesn't take up the twelve, and these guys are the leaders amongst the leaders. So even Jesus couldn't always teach all 12 what he wanted to. And so he's got to pick out those top three. They're the top three. The leaders among the leaders, they were the first ones called, if you go back and read chapter 1. And in Mark, when you read the list of the 12, those three are the first three listed. And with the other gospel writers, they are three of the top four. Andrew's put second in the other ones but you have Peter, James, and John are right there in the top four. The top four are always the same. They were the ones that were chosen to go in when Jairus's daughter was raised up. Didn't take everybody in there. Ain't gonna bring everybody, gonna bring these three. I'm training these three specifically. And Peter is the one that confesses Jesus as Messiah and James and John, they're the ones, they wanna sit on the right hand and the left. It's those three. They're ambitious. He's gotta deal with that. And who's the three that Jesus takes with him when he agonizes in the garden? Peter, James, and John. It's the same three. And they've got a prominent place. They've got a special place in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, don't they? He chose to take them with him, so he takes them up into that high mountain. And what do mountains represent in Scripture? Represent Revelation. It's where revelation takes place because that is where in the Bible God meets man. Many places. Genesis 22, where does Abraham go to offer up Isaac? On the top of Mount Moriah. And I believe he has a revelation there. He's ready to sacrifice his son, his only son. And when he's stopped, he tells the boy, he says, God will provide And he gets ready to kill that boy and he gets stopped by that angel. And God did provide a lamb. And Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day before it ever came. And I think that's one way he knew that. But there's a revelation that takes up there. God will provide the sacrifice I need for my sins. Abraham saw that. It wasn't going to be Isaac. It was going to be his seed down the road that he saw a revelation that took place there. In 1 Kings 18 on Mount Carmel, they have a meeting there. Baal, they are all worshiping Baal in Israel. And what's Elijah? He's calling them to repentance. You need to turn from that Baal worship and turn to the true God. And Baal was the God of rain. He'd shut the heavens up for three years by the word of the Lord, greater than the word of Baal. And so he gets with those prophets up there, that's happened, and I've been up there on the top of Mount Carmel. And right there, Israel gets a revelation, the people do, of who the true God is, don't they? Because that fire comes down, and they are in awe. And they shout out, the Lord, He is the God. Actually, the Lord is God. The Lord is God. And Elijah turns the hearts of the people back to the Lord. A revelation took place there when the fire fell. And, of course, we know in Exodus 24, Mount Sinai, God met with Moses for 40 days and 40 nights. And that man never ate or drank for all those 40 days and night. And what did he get a revelation of? God's law. No small thing. But you know what else happened? He's having a revelation of God Himself. Because what happens when Moses comes down off that mountain? The Mount of Transfiguration, the glorification of Jesus comes from within. Moses, though, it said his face shone. So Jesus is emanating like the sun, the source. Moses is more like the moon. He's reflecting the glory of God. It's not coming from within him, but it was there when he came down, a revelation. And there's a lot of similarities between the transfiguration that takes place here and Moses' encounter with God at Mount Sinai because Moses was a type of Christ. He was a type of Christ in the Old Testament. So both of them go up into a mountain and take three named people peter james and john in the case of jesus and there was three named i'm not sure I remember exactly the names i know it was aaron and his two sons were the three named along with 70 others that weren't named that go up into that mountain god appears in both cases in the form of a cloud that overshadows and a voice comes out of the cloud in both times and the people are in awe And he said, that voice came out of that cloud so those people would fear and they would hear your words, Moses. And that's what we have here with Jesus. This is my beloved son, greater than Moses. He says, hear him, is what the Lord says out of that cloud to those three. Jesus is transfigured and said, and his clothes became brilliantly white. And Moses had said, his skin shone. Moses appears here during this transfiguration it happens, but he's overshadowed by what? By the brightness and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's completely overshadowed. He fades from view because the type is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? It's fulfilled. And then it, he fades away. There comes a point there. Moses and Elijah nowhere to be seen. It's the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where all the focus is. Hebrews 3 tells us that Moses was a faithful leader, but Jesus was counted worthy of more glory than Moses. It says Moses was a servant of the house, but the Lord Jesus Christ was the son over the house. And it said Moses, like us, was part of the house that was built, but they said that is nothing compared to the one that is the builder of the house, the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's the type that fulfills everything that Moses was and what was pointing to. So Jesus takes up Peter, James, and John up into the mountain. Luke 9 tells us, we don't get this in Mark. So you read all three accounts. Luke 9 tells us he took them up into the mountain. Does anyone know to do what? To pray. Took them up there to pray. And it says that as he prayed, in Luke's account, the fashion of his countenance was altered. So, as Jesus is praying, they're up there to be praying with him. It says the fashion of his countenance was altered. What were they doing? The disciples, the three, Peter, James, and John, doing the same thing they were doing in the garden, sleeping. Like that happens to us a lot, doesn't it? You've got good intentions to pray, you're going to seek for the glory of the Lord. And what happens? You fall asleep. You wake up and you've got that stuff coming down the side of your mouth. We all know what I'm talking about. Well, that's what happened to them. They fell asleep. So it says in Luke 9 that Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were awake, all of a sudden they wake up. It says they wake up to this. They see his glory and the two men, Moses and Elijah, standing there with them. I mean, have you ever been like you're like really tired and you're out of it? And I mean, out of it and all of a sudden. Uh, you hear this loud noise, or better yet, you hear your kid's voice like right in front of you. And it's just like there they are standing there with this look on their face like, we got trouble, Dad. I mean, you're waking up to that. It's like, it's tough, isn't it? Well, look at these guys. They wake up, and what do they see? Here's the Lord Jesus Christ in His full glory in front of them. Could you imagine what that would be like? They said they were heavy with sleep. I'd be like, what in the world? Didn't know that was going to happen. That's what it would have had to have been. Very disconcerting. And Matthew describes what Jesus looked like this way. He said He was transfigured before them, and it said His face, if you can picture this, His face did shine as the sun, and His raiment was white as the light. And Luke says the fashion of His countenance was altered, and His raiment was white and glistering. I've never used that word lately, glistering. My teeth used to look that way way back when I was a little boy, white and glistering. And Mark tells us that he was transfigured before them, and his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fooler on earth could white them. Now that word for transfigured, do we know what that word is? That's our word for metamorphosis. It's the same one that's used in Romans 12, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, and the same verse that Brother Hamilton used to like to quote out of 2 Corinthians 3, we behold His glory and we're transformed. We should have a metamorphosis taking place in us. That's what's supposed to happen as us as Christians. There should be a total change from where we started to where we end up in our Christian life. It should be unrecognizable because what do we think about when you think of a metamorphosis taking place? You're always thinking about the caterpillar that undergoes the change and becomes a butterfly. And the two couldn't look any dissimilar, could they? Couldn't look any dissimilar in any way. And that's the way it's supposed to be for us in our Christian walk. But what we're talking about here is that's what happened with the Lord Jesus Christ. He went through, I mean, a total change. I mean, he looked as ordinary as Josh sitting there. when he went up on that mountain. And all of a sudden they're looking and it says his face shines like the sun in the noonday could you imagine trying to, on a clear day looking up at the sun how bright it is you can't look at that for more than a second and that's what they're saying they're looking at when they talk about his clothes being glistering and white it says it's white as light and that glistering means it's flashing like lightning that's what the word literally means radiant Can you imagine seeing that his clothes are radiating it's coming from within him it's not like it's something on his clothes, glitter on his clothes. It's not that. No, it's his essence radiating out of there. So it talks about an angel back when in his resurrection took place. The same kind of language is used. The angel that came from heaven and rolled away the stone at Jesus' tomb. It says this. It says he descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. And it says about this angel that his countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And listen, here's what happens when you would see something like that. It's just hard to imagine. It's hard to put into words. I think the evangelists, Matthew, Mark, and Luke writing this, are having trouble finding the words to describe what they saw. But when these keepers of Jesus and that stone rolls away and they're looking at this angel this heavenly being glistening white and his face being brilliant like that. It says, For fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. That's hard to imagine, isn't it? What they were seeing. It had to be unbelievable. A terrifying sight. Face like the sun. Blinding. And so what is going on here? What's happening here with all of this? God is given the disciples a full revelation of who Jesus is. So he's just revealed to them what the purpose of the Messiah was. He's going to be suffering. He's going to have to suffer and he's going to have to die and rise again. And now what is he doing? He's revealing, okay, you haven't seen this yet. You've seen things he's done, but now I I showed you his purpose. Now I'm going to show you his true nature. Visible revelation They're getting. It's a revelation taking place on a mountain of the nature of this one they've been following. They've never seen before. No ordinary person, the Lord Jesus Christ, totally transformed in front of them. It's a revelation they're getting right here. So they're not seeing Peter, James and John. They're not going to see what Jesus is going to become one day. What are they seeing? They're seeing what he is. What he is. The glory they're seeing on that mountain is not something that he just gets for a moment, but it's the glory he has forever, eternally possessed. So do we understand through that teaching of Dr. Ware that when Jesus came on earth in the incarnation, he didn't set aside any of his divine attributes, not one of them. They were covered, so to speak. A veil was put over them. And right now we're seeing God the Father is temporarily parting that veil of His flesh in a sense that His glory is coming out. And they're seeing that. That's always there. You know, Dr. Ware, those of you that have read his book, he gave this example in in our class I had, and he also has it in his book. And I think it's a helpful illustration to understand what's happening here. And he says that a man goes in a car dealership and wants to test drive a car. So he picks out this new, brightly, shiny, four-wheel drive car. Yeah, you can take that out for a drive, sure. Well, it's been raining. And so he takes that brand new, shiny four-wheel drive car out, and he finds some muddy roads, because he wants to test out that four-wheel drive, wants to see how well it works. So He gets out on those roads, and he's shifting gears, and the tires are slipping, and he's fishtailing, and he's just flinging mud everywhere. And pretty soon that entire car is covered with mud. And so he drives back in there and gets out, walks up to the dealer. And the dealer is like, what did you do to my bright, new, shiny car? And the guy's like, I didn't do anything to it. It's still there. It's underneath the mud. It's all still there. It's in perfect condition. The beauty of that car hasn't been destroyed or diminished one bit. But what has happened is the beauty of that car has been covered by the mud. We getting that? Yeah. So Jesus never ceased to be God. Never ceased to be God with his divine attributes. He can't. It's impossible. But when he took on flesh, they were veiled or limited because he also took on full human nature. But God here has pulled back the veil and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ has come on display And it's brilliance. So he's given this revelation to these guys, I believe, for two reasons, maybe more. I don't know. But these are two. I would say that he's assuring them. Peter had made this confession six days before, hadn't he? Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And this is visible proof that what he said is the truth. And no doubt about it. Never going to have to doubt that again, are they? That Jesus is indeed the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And listen, those guys never got over it. Would you? (laughs) I don't think I would. Man, oh man. And John wrote this. John, who was there in chapter 1 of his Gospel, verse 14, he says, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He said, oh, God took on flesh. I can't explain, John would say, but I know one thing. At one point I was privileged. I beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. And if you would put something there in Mark and turn over to Second Peter Peter was there and he wrote about it too. Second Peter chapter one, beginning in verse 14. And Peter writes this, 2 Peter 1, 14. Knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that you may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. In the Holy Mount. He's saying, I don't want you guys to ever forget this because I have never forgot it. And that is, I beheld the majesty and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying there. Doesn't want anybody to forget it. The second reason for this revelation to Peter, James, and John. So you have the transfiguration that happens and you also have that cloud that overshadows him and you also have that voice that came saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. So what were they struggling with that we saw in chapter eight? They're struggling with this whole thing of him talking about suffering, dying or whatever. And right now, put it this way, there's a divine attestation to what Jesus said. He's saying, I'm co-signing." I'm telling you, I'm co-signing everything he said to you. This is God Almighty, the Father, speaking out of this cloud. This is my beloved Son. You saw he was the Messiah. That was confirmed to you by this transfiguration. And I'm saying, quit fighting his words. Understand what he's saying. Hear him. God the Father's telling them is not just limited to the fact that he says you need to deny yourself take up your cross and follow me, and I'm going to suffer, die, and be raised again. It's not just limited to that, is it? I'm not going to get into Hebrews chapter 1, but he said in times past God spoke to His people all these different ways through all these different prophets, through dreams, through visions, through prophets acting up things. But he said now in these last days He's spoken to us through His Son, His Son who is His glory and His image. And he goes on to say at the beginning of chapter 2, we need to take heed, to not neglect that son, because when the word came from angels in the Ten Commandments and people disobeyed that, he said they were got a just recompense of award. war. He says, how much more? If God sent his son from heaven down here to speak to us, we had better hold on to that and not let it slip away from us. All of his words he said, that cost him a lot to come down here and speak to us, didn't it? We really need to give heed to the Word of God that's been given to us. So I'd like to just say here a brief word, if you want to go back to Mark, a brief word about Moses and Elijah being present, and then I just want to make a few observations. So I think there's two things that come with the fact that Moses and Elijah were there. And the first thing is, both of those men were end-time figures that point to the coming of the Messiah, So the Jews had two end time expectations. Did you know that? They had two things that they're saying, this is what's going to happen to our nation in the end times, And one of them was, if you remember back in Deuteronomy 18, Moses says, there's going to be a prophet that's going to come like me. Here's exactly what he said. Deuteronomy 18, 18. Moses said, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee. God said this, and I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. And so the Jews were looking and asking. Remember, they asked John the Baptist. They said, are you Elijah or are you that prophet? That's who they're talking about. This one that was predicted back by Moses in Deuteronomy 18. And they're also looking for Elijah. Remember when we looked on Malachi chapter 4, both Moses and Elijah are mentioned in the last chapter and the last verses of what would have been their Bible in the book of Malachi, Malachi chapter 4. They're looking for him. They know he's going to come right before the Messiah comes. And so look here, if you're back in Mark 9, look what they ask here in verses 10 and 11. It said, and they kept that saying after they saw the Son of Man, he tells them not to tell anyone. And he said they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. And they asked him, saying, why say the scribes that Elijah must come first? So they're saying, hey, we know what the scribes are saying. These experts in the Bible, they're saying that Elijah has to come before the promised Messiah was come. And they're saying, so if Elijah comes before the day of the Lord which is what it says in Malachi 4 when the Messiah is to be manifested the question is how can he be dead if Elijah comes which we just saw how can he be dead and need to be raised up again he's supposed to be the deliverer that's what they can't understand they can't put that together And so they don't know. They say, well, it says that Elijah is going to come and restore all things. They don't understand what the Lord means by restoration. What is the restoration? Does anyone know the restoration that's promised in Malachi 4 at the end? He says he's going to restore the father's hearts. He's going to grant repentance. Restore the father's hearts to the children and the children to the fathers. That's the kind of restoration he's talking about. Repentance. And Jesus says, wait a minute, fellas. Elijah has already come. It was John the Baptist. But look, he's not what you were expecting, right? Because he says the first time. So this isn't all fulfilled. Elijah still is going to come back, I believe. But what they have to see is this is not what you were expecting because this first coming, not only of Elijah, which is John the Baptist, he says in the spirit of Elijah, but not only him, but the Messiah, both of them are going to suffer and die that's what's going to happen and that's what they weren't understanding and that is what he's telling them so he's telling them though he's saying i am the end time prophet moses predicted that's why moses is here and elijah has come the fact that those two are here they confirm that to those disciples both of them were there and i think the second reason that they came it doesn't say in mark it just tells us that they talked with jesus it doesn't say what they talked about. In Luke's account, though, it says that they talked about his decease, which he should accomplish in Jerusalem. And that word for decease is exodon, exodus. So he's fulfilling another exodus, the second exodus. Exodus that's going to happen. Through His blood being shed, He's going to deliver a group of people through that. And that says they're talking to Him about that. I heard this on a tape years ago. What's He doing there? What are they doing? Guess what? If the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't make it to the cross, guess who doesn't get their glorified bodies? and doesn't end up making it. All of us that I'm looking at right here, but Moses and Elijah, and they're encouraging him. You've got to go through with this. You've got to make it. That's what I think they're telling him. Because otherwise, Elijah, he was translated. Moses has said no one know what happened to his body. And they're coming back and they're like, you have got to make it. They're encouraging him. You've got to press on through. There's a lot at stake here, and I think that's what's going on there. Don't give up. So I'd like to just give a few closing thoughts here of application on part of what we see for us, what this would mean to us. Jesus takes those three disciples to the mountain. And what did he do? He's praying. And we don't know exactly what he was praying, but I would imagine he's praying that God would give them a revelation of his nature so that they could come to a knowledge of him. You know why? Because that's what Paul prayed for the churches so I think we can all in a sense have the same revelation they had and I would contend that we need it (laughs) so all of us in a sense need to go to the mountain so that the Lord can give us a revelation of the nature of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ just like he did with them so I don't mean to sound like a broken record but that is Paul's exact prayer in Ephesians 1 in light of what we're teaching tonight, what did Paul pray? He says, I make mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Isn't that what happened here on top of this mouth? Isn't that what they're getting? They're getting the revelation of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. Now, we can get it by reading the Word. I believe God can just open up your, your understanding, your spirit. to What is His power? That's what Paul prayed. We can never have too much of that. We'll never know the extent of His power towards us, he says, who believe. It's a revelation. Something that we need to pray about, isn't it? He goes on in Ephesians 3, Paul does... And says he prays this, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ, which passes all knowledge and experiential knowledge of the love of Christ. That's what he prayed for. Those two things for those people in Ephesians. And I think we all need that. And I think, honestly, it's going to be crucial for end-time survival. If you want to know what I think, I really do. It's going to get bad. It already is. So Jonathan Edwards. Many of you may know, many of you might not know anything about Jonathan Edwards. But, you know, he lived during the First Great Awakening, during the early colonial days. And he's a preacher that is really more known as a hell and brimstone, fire, preaching type. But he really wasn't that way. He was, but he wasn't. So everyone knows about his famous sermon, or many people have heard, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Jonathan Edwards has a lot of messages on the love of God. And he says, if you don't know that and you're not happy in God, you can't live a fulfilled Christian life. A lot of people don't know that about him. But he had this experience as a young man. He would read and meditate, and go out and just meditate on verses. And he read 1 Timothy 1:17, now unto the King eternal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. And he said that as he was praying and meditating on that verse, he had a revelation that came to him, the incomprehensible greatness of God of the vast universe who was truly eternal and all wise. He said, it just flamed in my soul. I just had a revelation of it is the way he described it. As he read these words, here's what he said. There came into my soul, and it was as if it were spread throughout it, a sense of the glory of the divine being, a new sense quite different from anything I had ever experienced before. And he said from that point on, it affected his praying, it affected his reading of the Scripture, and he was even skeptical of it himself. He'd had experiences before when he'd been in a crisis, and they just dissipated. They just went away. But this one, it says, was different. Was different. New affections grew as the spring went on. It says, as he wandered in the field, woods, and hills near New Haven, Connecticut, where he lived, for his meditations... Listen, it says he repeatedly saw the glory and beauty of God's love in Christ. He experienced an inward sweet sense of Christ's love expressed in the, quote, work of redemption and the glorious way of salvation by him. I'm telling you, Jonathan Edwards wasn't one of these crazy barking like dog types at all. And they had major revival that was a true spirit Came down on congregation revival, people truly repenting. God glorified revival took place under his ministry. Just a very godly man. And it says he went and talked to his dad. His dad was a godly minister, that if they experienced revival under his preaching, he went and talked to his dad. And after he was done, he came away from that. He said he went out in the field and he said, As I was walking there and looked up on the sky and clouds, there came into my mind a sweet sense of the glorious majesty and grace of God that I know not how to express. Now, isn't that what we're talking about here with Peter, James, and John? And wouldn't you want that? Have you ever had anything like that happen to you to some degree? I'm sure you have if you're a Christian. If you're not, God will give it to you. I mean, I'm not one to you go seeking for signs and seeking for things in a weird way. No, don't want that at all. But I think there is something there to what's being said that we can and should experience it. And it says, what overwhelmed him was two seemingly opposite attributes of the triune God, his majesty and meekness joined together. It was a sweet and gentle and holy majesty and also a majestic meekness, an awful sweetness, a high and great and holy gentleness. Amen. Amen. That's something to press in for, isn't it? That's something to believe God for. And that's what happened to Peter, James, and John. That's what happened to them. But it brings me to my second point, and that is nobody, though, including Jonathan Edwards, because that didn't last for him forever. Because everybody goes up on a mountaintop, and guess what? Everybody's going to have to come back down into the valley. Probably make a song out of that, right? Because look here, Mark 9, look at verses 7 and 8. It said there was a cloud that overshadowed them. Verse 7, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Verse 8, and suddenly when they looked round about they saw no man anymore save Jesus only with themselves. You think about it, all these incredible things are going on right? They're seeing Jesus in His glory. Here's Moses and Elijah. I mean could you imagine you're seeing them? I mean we got to wait for heaven. But he, these guys are seeing them right there. I mean, the Lord Jesus Christ and all his glory, two of the greatest Old Testament figures are right there in front of him. The cloud of God the Father descends upon all of them. They hear the voice of the Father in heaven speaking to them. Can you imagine all of that? What an experience. And no wonder Peter says, Hey, I'd like to build a shelter for everybody because I want to stay up here for a while. I like this. Let's build a booth for you and we'll all hang around. This is great. Nobody wants to leave, but as quickly as it starts, we just read in verse 8, it ends, doesn't it? Suddenly. They're on their face in fear with everything going on, and it says, suddenly, it's over. They look around and hey, hey, what happened to, where's Moses and Elijah? Well, where's the cloud? And Jesus, you look like you always do. You just look like a regular person himself. did not look like anything special anymore like us. And guess what they have to do then? After that experience, they have to walk down the mountain into the valley, back to problems, back to people, back to life. Uh, They're like all of us. Wouldn't you rather be up on the mountain with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah and God the Father speaking to you than to deal to have to go down there and deal with a crowd that's upset and a father that's upset and an epileptic boy that's got problems? Wouldn't you rather be up on the mountain? I guarantee you they would have. We can be overwhelmed with our trials, with our problems, and I would say even just the dullness of life sometimes, can't we, at times. Here's why we need to have and I believe God will give people, if they seek it, the mountaintop experiences, because when we're down in the valley dealing with life, we need to look back on the times God has given us those revelations, those experiences of His love, those experiences of you know He's with you. The big ones, you know, when you get a manifestation, when you're in a trial it's a serious trial and God comes through, that is like, wow, everything opens up. You read your Bible's different, you know God's with you. It's big time, isn't it? But then there's the little ones that that are just as important, I think. You're reading your Bible and that verse sticks out to you. God's ministering to you or someone calls you or texts you or just whatever. The day we live in, you get a text. But just that thing where you just know God's with you, you just have that witness. And the bright, big time things, they don't take faith, seemingly. It almost seems like God just carries you along through that. But it's those times when you're down in life's problems and trials that that's when you need to look back and remember What it was like on the mountain. Because you can't always be up there, but you can remember that. Peter never forgot it. Oh no, I want you all to know we were eyewitnesses of the majesty of God. Never forgot that. And I know no matter how much I'm suffering, Peter would say, no matter what I go through, that's what's gonna be me. I'm gonna see him again one day. That's what's gonna happen. And so we're down. We need to be like David, don't we? What did David do? He's at Ziglag, he's got problems, he reminds himself of all those times that God was faithful to him, that God met him, that God's presence was with him, and he encouraged himself, it says, in the Lord. God him through that, of God's faithfulness. And one writer wrote this, he says, earthly life cannot be all heavenly visions. Sometimes the memory fades and one may doubt if it was real. Was it all a mirage or a hallucination? He says, the words of our Lord, though, remain constant. However, one must continue to listen to Jesus. Those words, his words are able to sustain us when tingling visionary moments have grown dim. Amen. His words will sustain us. And so the last thing I want to talk about is just briefly mention is that we need to remember that biblically suffering And glory go hand in hand. So the Bible doesn't just talk about all suffering with no glory. And it doesn't just say our life is just going to be one continual cross experience because it's not that way, is it? Because God gives us manifestations. He gives us times of joy. He gives us that's just the way he is. Right. But we also have to know we can't do without that suffering is part of the Christian life. If you will not bear the cross, the song used to go, you will not wear the crown. We've got to be willing to bear that cross. And so we have to heed that command that came from the cloud. This is my beloved son, hear him. And one of the things he had just said is, whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. But what we can know from this is, if we'll do that, we will enjoy his smile his presence, and will partake of the same glory that he has. Amen. Amen. Because here's what we'll close with. 1 John 3 says this, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knows us not. We just look like Jesus did before he was transfigured, just another guy or gal. The world knows us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now though we are the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, and every man that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, I just ask that it will make a deep impression in our heart. And I ask, Lord, you'll give everyone here that will seek you for a revelation of the knowledge. Our understanding will be open for wisdom and revelation and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we can see him in his fullness, in his glory, in his love for us. And when we have that hope, Lord, we will purify ourselves so that we can see Him face-to-face one day and be like Him. Amen. So I thank You, Lord, for Your Word that You've given us tonight in Your presence here. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you all would stand up. Behold, Holy comes
1: Riding on the clouds shining like the sun at the trumpets call your